Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as historic contract negotiations went on between UPS and the Teamsters against a backdrop of a country ever more reliant on package deliveries and the people who deliver them, the New York Times offered readers a lesson in almost but not quite subtext with a piece including the priceless line, quote, By earning solid profits with a largely unionized workforce, UPS has proved that opposing unions isn't the only path to financial success, close quote. The tentative agreement that both the union and the company are calling a win-win-win, including consumers in that equation, presents a bit of a block for elite media so deeply accustomed to calling any union action a harm and any company acknowledgement of workers' value a concession. Teddy Ostro will bring us up to speed on the Teamsters and UPS. He reports on labor and economic issues and is host and lead producer of the podcast The Upsurge. Also on the show, despite how it may feel, there is no need for competition. You can be terribly worried about the devastating, galloping effects of climate disruption and also be terribly confused and disturbed by the stubborn unwillingness of elected officials to react appropriately in the face of it. What are the obstacles between the global public's dire needs articulated wants, desperate demands, and the actual actions of so-called leaders supposedly positioned to represent and enforce those needs, wants, and demands. And wouldn't a free press in a democratic society be the place where we would see that conflict explained? Independent news media have always tried to step into the space abandoned by corporate media. That job only gets more critical. Matthew Cunningham Cook covers a range of issues for The Lever. Levernews.com has the piece we'll be talking about. The GOP is quietly adding climate denial to government spending bills. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In early July, the New York Times ran an article that said, quote, The world is watching what happens at the UPS Teamsters negotiating table because a strike would cause real problems, close quote. It's true that many eyes were on the working out of an agreement between UPS, which handles roughly a quarter of packages shipped in this country, and the Teamsters, representing some 340,000 workers in this critical sector. But it's funny how corporate news media choose to define labor's power in terms of destructiveness. Somehow it's, it'd be rotten if they stopped working and not they and their work are very important. That said, the agreement reached, the success and solidarity in getting to it, that's very much a story worth telling. Our guest has been telling it. Teddy Ostrell reports on labor and economics. He's host and lead producer of the podcast The Upsurge, as well as a former FAIR intern. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome to Counterspin, Teddy Ostrell. 
pleasure to be here, Janine. Well, part of the loss from corporate media's general failure to report regularly and inclusively on labor is that people who haven't been in a union or in a union family may be frankly unfamiliar with how things happen in contract negotiations, for example. So I want to talk about the content of the agreement. But first of all, we're recording on Wednesday, August 2nd. What should we know about the state of play right now? Right. So there was a tentative agreement that was reached on July 25th. That's not a done deal, right? This is tentative, meaning that the workers in a democratic fashion are going to be voting between August 3rd and August 22nd about whether or not this is uh, good enough for them. Basically, if they voted down, the union leadership will go back to the table and try to get something better. And if they can't work out a deal, the strike is still potential, right? 340,000 workers, one of the largest potential strikes in decades, still really could happen. Well, so the headlines that sort of give you the impression that strike has been averted, it's true, but it really means averted for now. And the, the there's not a contract that's signed yet, just to be clear. Yeah, we are seeing in headlines right now, you know, some corporate media headlines are being a little bit clearer. You can see that they actually are revising the headlines mm-hmm. when perhaps business reporters who are assigned to these stories actually understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this this is not a done deal. Nothing was averted, prevented, added off quite yet. Right. Um, and we can talk about some of the issue of that framing in itself. But yeah, this is not over yet. We are still waiting on the democratic process of voting on this. Well, I do believe that people are learning that strikes and labor actions are not only about higher pay, though that is often central, but people can see the economy shifting. They know that more things are being bought online and delivered. It's even sort of culturally acknowledged, you know, get to know your UPS person. So what were the central issues in dispute here? One of the main issues certainly was pay, but in particular for the part-time workforce at UPS, which comprised 60% of the teamsters who work at UPS. And these folks are making, you know, as low as $15.50 an hour, which is completely unlivable. And a lot of these people were living in poverty. But beyond even just the economics, we're looking at the case of forced and excessive overtime really making people's lives harder, working up to 14 hours a day, up to six days a week in the case of package delivery card drivers. And we're also talking about the real serious risks of even death and heat stroke and other weather-related hazards in the warehouse, in the package car, as we're dealing with the climate crisis. And there's a number of other issues. And in this PA, it does seem like the Teamsters have made a number of gains. It's up to the membership to decide whether those gains are sufficient. There is certainly devil in the details in certain cases, and some folks are speaking up and saying, we're going to vote no, we're going to vote yes, we'll have to wait and see. But the story here is that workers fought really hard over the past year, 340,000 Teamsters at this company they, for the past year, have been doing a contract campaign, which is really just about 
making sure that the membership is educated, making sure that they are organized and mobilized, and building a credible strike threat. And that's this narrative here. It's not that anything was averted, that the economy was saved, but that workers fought and they won. And perhaps the workers would decide that they could have fought and won for more. But all of the news we've been seeing about practice picket lines, about rallies, about educating the workforce, this is why that the workers have achieved what they have so far. And whether it's part-time pay, whether it's gaining air conditioning in the delivery car, whether it's camping down on some of that forced overtime, workers fought and they certainly did win. Well, we know that you are a media observer and understand the importance of press coverage here as elsewhere. You've you've started to tip it, but what have you made of the reporting of, first of all, the circumstances and conditions that led to the action, you know, and the forces involved, but then of the goings-on themselves? What stands out for you? Well, of course, we're seeing most media jump on the story at the 11th hour. So there wasn't a lot of work done necessarily to explain the history leading up to this, the struggles for years of these workers, and the organizing done to make sure that there was a credible strike threat and that the workers could win concessions from the company. But what we're looking at is that, right, like this sort of sigh of relief coming from media mm-hmm. that the strike has been averted, it's been prevented this looming strike that would have crippled or devastated the economy that is stripped of context. It's almost like an asteroid decided to not hit the earth, (laughs) right? We're seeing a a lot of peddling and catastrophism. And what this does is it sort of invokes the quote unquote economy. That's what we've been hearing the economy as the potential victim or victor in the case of a averted strike, which is really just framing us as the consumer framing us as an alliance with corporations. Because when they say the economy, which is what we've been hearing in the case of the preemptively broken rail strike last year, in this case as well, they are talking about the flow of capital. They're talking about the flow of profits. And as the consumer audience, framed as the consumer, we're supposed to identify with that. And we are supposed to hear the economy could be harmed. And we're supposed to think that I or my family or my friends will be harmed by this. Um, we will be inconvenienced by our packages perhaps not coming on time. And what, what this does, it completely overshadows the stakes for the workers, the problems that these workers have been dealing with, which include death, harassment, uh, sickness not being able to see your kids uh, in the morning or at night because you are being forced to work all day, living in shelters, living on the streets because you don't have enough money to live and pay for necessities. It papers all of that. And it overlooks that the audience that the corporate media is catering to, well, they're workers themselves, Right. right? And the knowledge or the benefit of a better agreement of a potential strike is lost on corporate media or it's lost on the audience of corporate media. Because as workers, when other workers do better, when the 340,000 UPS workers get better benefits, get better pay, they have better working conditions, that can have reverberations in the effect of standards in the industry, and it can also have demonstration effect. 
that workers in other industries all around the country can maybe use the leverage that they have, the principal leverage against their employers, which is the threat of a strike, to get what they deserve, to get what they want. We're just seeing all of that context stripped out by this kind of singular framing of you. The, The strike was averted. Good thing for consumers, good thing for corporations, and of course, you, media consumers. You know, we talk about this all the time, the way that when it comes to labor actions, corporate media try to split customers or consumers and workers as though workers weren't consumers and consumers weren't workers, you know. And and AP, in this instance, ran a piece that was headlined. I tracked it through Nexus. Hawaii, a newspaper, ran it, and they headlined it, Customers Want Instant Gratification. Workers say it's pushing them to the brink. Then in Rhode Island, the headline was Consumer Demand for Speed and Convenience Driving Labor Unrest. And then in Vancouver, Washington, Labor Unrest Driven by Consumers' Demands. And, you know, sometimes that's easy for media to do, although it's lazy and disingenuous. But with both Sean O'Brien, the head of the Teamsters, and the head of UPS, Carol Tomei, both coming out saying this tentative agreement is a win-win-win, media can only do their worker versus consumer shtick in a kind of counterfactual, well, it, it really would have been bad, you know, sort of way. I think it complicates media's tendency to try to square off consumers versus workers in this case. And we are seeing sort of like desperate attempts to in this, I think, and the rates are going to go up. UPS is going to lose their uh, volumes to competition. And it seems almost as if there's still this reflexive framing to whatever happens in the case of a labor dispute, that the workers have somehow squeezed out the profitability and therefore the service of the corporation. Thankfully, we are starting to see at least some acknowledgement. I think that things have probably changed over time, especially since UPS Teamsters have struck the company last in 1997, where there was a pretty firm line that this is all about the inconvenience to the consumer. But things are changing more broadly in the labor movement. I think that the corporate media have their feet to the fire to start actually asking questions about inequality in corporate power. We're seeing it with the 160,000 actors out on strike. We're seeing it with the 11,000 writers. L.A. seems to be a real uh, powerhouse right now for the labor movement, but more broadly. The story here, they're trying to bend themselves not to exactly tell, but are being forced to tell, is that something's happening in the United States for workers. They're seeing through the pleading poverty of corporations, whether it's UPS or the AMPTP in Hollywood. And they're saying, look, we deserve more. And they're starting to see unions. They're starting to see collective action as the avenue to take back what they create. Workers create wealth, and they are starting to recognize that. So corporate media is, as they did in 1997, temporarily, they're starting to sort of bend to that. And we are seeing more labor reporters, for example, but even in the regular press, acknowledgement that a tentative deal, whether it's this one or the next one, is going to raise the standards. And it is a part of a larger movement that we're seeing 
that is hopefully resurgent and is going to help working people for years to come. All right, then let's end on that note. We've been speaking with reporter Teddy Ostro from the podcast The Upsurge. Thank you so much, Teddy Ostro, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me, Janine. Listeners may have encountered some variant of the statement attributed to labor organizer and folk singer Utah Phillips that says, the earth is not dying, it is being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. It's cited because it's powerful, and its power derives in part from the fact that it goes against the pervasive discourse, certainly of corporate news media, that things are bad, even scary bad, even unprecedentedly hard to imagine bad. But the point is, you know, progress happens and getting angry doesn't help and disrupting things. Well, that's criminal as well as misguided. And then what's that? Things are getting worse. Well, that's another story for another day. There are myriad things that account for climate disruption and for its devastating and disparate effects, but the top-down resistance to naming the obstacles to a safer world is an important one, and one in which news media play a big role. Our guest is one of those working to fill that void. Matthew Cunningham Cook covers a range of issues for The Lever. He's also written for Labor Notes, Public Employee Press, and Al Jazeera America, among other outlets. He joins us now by phone from Costa Rica. Welcome to Counterspin, Matthew Cunningham Cook. Thanks so much for having me on, Denine. I appreciate it. Well, the latest, the last I checked, is that a crucial Atlantic Ocean circulation system that's a cornerstone of global climate may collapse as quickly as two years from now. Though, as Julie Holler wrote for FAIR.org, that wasn't enough to get it on everybody's front page. But truly, there is no need to cite any indicators here. Anybody who believes in science and their sensory organs knows that bad things are happening and more are on the horizon and that there are things that we can do besides throwing up our hands and saying it is what it is. So tell us about your recent story that tells us that there are things stepping between what people want and what is reflected in policy. Yeah, I mean, we just took a look at the latest funding bills that are winding their way through the House right now. And just the different insane aspects that Republicans have added. So yeah, I mean, there's one particular component that's extremely egregious that bans research on climate change's impact on fisheries. And this is, while traditionally Republican states like Alaska are dealing with the collapse of their fisheries currently, there's requiring that the Biden administration issue these offshore oil gas leases that slows down wind power leases and that defunds the U.S.'s very limited responsibilities under the Paris Climate Accords. So, yeah, I mean, it's a full-on assault on basic 
reason and how we respond to the climate crisis. And what we do at the lever that is not typically replicated in the corporate media is we just line up the policy with the campaign contributions from the oil and gas industry. So the members of Congress who are championing these draconian assaults on basic climate science receive hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from the oil and gas industry. And you really don't see this in the New York Times or the Washington Post. They do report on these types of developments. It's usually separated from basic questions like campaign finance, which is clearly what drives these changes more than anything else, what drives these proposed changes more than anything else. So that's what we did. And it's a depressing story, I think, for sure. What we're hoping to do is ultimately shame the corporate media into doing more reporting like this that directly lines up policy with campaign contributions. Because if you're reporting these two issues separately, the public is just not getting the full picture. Absolutely. And folks are kind of misunderstanding the disconnect because, you know, media will do a story about the way the public feels about climate disruption or about just the horrors of climate disruption. But as you say, it's going to be a separate page to a story about campaign finance, as though it's not a direct line from A to B. And I and I want to point out part of what's key about the piece that you wrote is these are not things that Republicans are putting forward, this idea of supporting bad things and also preventing responsive things. They aren't introducing them as legislation that people can look at and think about. They're, they're yeah. sneaking them in, right? Yeah. It's just these small components of appropriations bills that nobody is paying attention to that, yeah, have, I mean, very meaningful consequences. I mean, one of the most important actions that the Biden administration has started to take is this climate disclosure rule, which just seems so basic, which is that publicly traded companies have these massive climate risks. They should disclose those risks to their investors. And it hasn't happened yet, and it's been attacked by both Republicans and so-called Democrats like Joe Manchin alike. But this is a critical step forward for the public to be able to get information about how the nation's largest corporations are, are poisoning our environment and how it not only hurts the public, but also their own investors, which includes the pension funds and retirement accounts of tens of millions of Americans. So yeah, it's not like they're trying to say, oh, let's pass an independent piece of legislation that bars the SEC from issuing this climate rule because it would never pass. Instead, they're inserting it into the appropriations process. And it also just underscores just how much more ideologically committed Republicans are than Democrats. You very rarely see Democrats when they control Congress, trying to use the appropriations process to expand (laughs) the federal government's ability to respond to climate change or expand labor rights. No, it's something that Republicans do, the opposite, (laughs) or closing 
yeah. actions on the environment or on labor rights. And then elite media kind of come in and say, can't we all just be civil and, and introduce the idea that there should be kind of a peacemaking between an overtly ideological and, and rule-bending, to be generous, party, and another that it says, oh, well, no, that's not a thing that we would do. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. And I guess the least that we would ask of media is that they at least just call it that way, at least describe it that way, instead of making it seem like it's a balance. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, Democrats like Henry Kuehar receive hundreds of thousands of dollars from the oil and gas industry. Absolutely. He's on the Appropriations Committee, and I'm sure he's enabling Republicans left and right. There is bipartisan commitment to letting the planet burn. It's not a cornerstone of the Democratic Party's ideology that we should let climate change go unaddressed until the human race goes extinct. That is a cornerstone of the Republican Party's agenda, and and we're not seeing that reported. Thank you. And let me just say that's where I see the lever and popular information and a bunch of other outlets coming in just to say to folks at a baseline level that, yes, there actually is a disconnect between what the public wants and is calling for and what we see coming out of Congress, you know, that there there actually are th- obstacles there. I think that's we would like all journalism to play that role, but you know, it's good that independent journalism is, is stepping up. Yeah, I agree. Yes. That's why we started. That's why we do the work we do is we saw this kind of gaping hole and we're working at it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's not easy, but we're just trying to get the message out there. We've been speaking with reporter Matthew Cunningham Cook. You can find his recent piece, The GOP is Quietly Adding Climate Denial to Government Spending Bills, co-authored with David Sirota, online at levernews.com. Thank you so much, Matthew Cunningham Cook, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. I appreciate it. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.